told Taylor Swift fans the V&A is looking to recruit one of her so-called Swifties as an advisor. It's looking for insights into the culture and memorabilia associated with the US star. That's the latest. I'm Faye Rowlands. K107 News. Talk about an exciting offer. Right now at Peter Vardy MG, the brand new MG ZS Excite comes with rear parking sensors, smartphone integration and Bluetooth connection for just £239 initial rental, then only £239 a month. That's right, just £239 a month for a brand new MG ZS Excite. Not only that, you'll also get up to seven years warranty. Visit Peter Vardy MG now to find out more. Peter Vardy! 48 months personal contract hire. Conditions apply. 24 hours a day. This is Kirkcaldy's Community Radio. K107 FM. And so, the mother of parliaments, the cradle from where all others learn how to develop and deliver democracy, descends into a day of despair. Chaos in the Commons over a ceasefire for Gaza. Salmon the Statesman on 25 years of devolution. And Audit Scotland claims the NHS can't meet growing demands. From Caledonia Media and Charles Fletcher with Scotland's favourite political show, The Week in Holyrood, from Westminster. Nevertheless, Mr Speaker, it descended into farce because of the decision that you made, and you alone made, to ignore the advice that was given to you by the clerks. We do not, on these benches, therefore, believe that you can continue in your role as Speaker. We do not have confidence. Welcome to Westminster and the Houses of Parliament. In this week's edition of the programme, Opposition Day descends into chaos as the Commons Speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, breaks convention on a vote over the continuing conflict in Gaza. Sir Lindsay allowed both the Conservative government and the Labour Party's amendments to an SNP motion calling for a ceasefire in the Middle East. Sir Lindsay broke convention here not to select opposition amendments. The SNP motion calls for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Labour's amendment wants what it labels an immediate humanitarian ceasefire and a separate government amendment calls for an immediate humanitarian pause. And while here at Westminster some people play with words, the conflict continues in Gaza. Let's rewind at this point and join my colleague Jeremy Bowen at BBC News on the breaking story of a terrorist attack on Israel from the 7th of October last year. This is extremely significant. In all the years that Hamas have been in control of Gaza, more than 15, they have never done anything like this. They have never launched a surprise attack uh, on a number of different locations. Israeli security officials said uh, an hour or so ago that there were 21 separate incidents going on. There's a lot of video circulating, not yet verified by the BBC, showing uh, bodies of Israeli soldiers, uh, some of whom were clearly surprised uh, in their bunks even by the attackers. No one was expecting Hamas to do anything like this. Tension has been rising very strongly 
between Palestinians and Israelis. There's been a lot of violence in the West Bank, which is the territory that goes from Jerusalem towards the Jordan River, uh, which has been occupied by Israel since 1967. Uh, that has been the focus now for months and months, and there's been a, a lot of killing and violence there, but nothing in comparison out of Gaza. So. I think now the Israelis are using very strong language. They say they're in a state of war. They've been attacked. They've pulled up reservists. They're having this emergency meeting of their security cabinet. And I think it is highly likely that once the Israelis um, make their plans, that they will probably mount an incursion into Gaza. Uh, this thing is likely to escalate. And since then, Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has ordered retaliatory strikes across Gaza. The Israeli government says it's determined to take out the terrorist group Hamas. This week, in an unprecedented intervention, the Prince of Wales, Prince William, said he wanted the fighting to stop, adding, too many lives have been lost. In the Commons, on what's known as an opposition day, the SNP brought forward a motion calling for an immediate ceasefire in the Israeli-Gaza conflict. It was a move that brought forward varying amendments specifically on the type of ceasefire this House could call for. During PMQ's SNP, Westminster leader Stephen Flynn challenged the Prime Minister on the semantics. Mr Speaker, as it stands, some 60% of the buildings in Gaza are either damaged or destroyed. Much of the farmland is in ruin. Some 30,000 people are dead, 70,000 injured, and 1.4 million people are currently sheltering in Rafa, awaiting an imminent Israeli onslaught. Surely the Prime Minister must accept that that does not amount to self-defence. Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, I share the concern of many members about the high rate of civilian casualties and indeed the growing humanitarian crisis in Gaza and that is why we have called consistently for an immediate humanitarian pause which would allow for the safe release of hostages and more aid going into Gaza so that we create the sustainable conditions for a long-term and enduring ceasefire. That is what our diplomatic efforts are focused on and that is what I impressed upon the Israeli Prime Minister last week when I spoke to him. Mr Speaker, tonight this House will have the opportunity to join with the majority of the international community and say that enough is enough, that the killing in Gaza must stop and that the hostages must be released. And the best way to do that is to send a clear and united message that we back an immediate ceasefire. Surely all of us, irrespective of our political allegiance, can agree on that very issue. Mr Mr. Speaker, of course we want to see the fighting in Gaza end as soon as possible and never again allow Hamas to carry out the appalling terrorist attacks that Israel was subject to. But he talks about the UN resolution, but just calling for an immediate full ceasefire now, which collapses back into fighting within days or weeks, is not in anyone's interest, Mr Speaker. We must work towards a permanent ceasefire, and that's why the right approach is the approach that we've set out and the United States have set out in their resolution, which is for an immediate humanitarian pause to get hostages out and aid in so that we then can create the conditions for a sustainable ceasefire.
ceasefire. And in the meantime, we're doing everything we can to increase the amount of humanitarian aid that we bring into Gaza, something I discussed with the King of Jordan last week, and we will have more updates in the coming days of more airdrops into Gaza, but also just in the last couple of days have managed to deliver family tents into Gaza, which are providing much-needed shelter for very vulnerable people. Later, Commons Speaker Lindsay Hoyle was greeted with anger and cries of shame when he announced the format of the debate to follow, agreeing to include amendments by the government and the Labour Party. We join my colleague at Channel 4 News, Gary Gibbon, on the day of chaos. Well, some extraordinary things have been happening in the House of Commons uh, today, which we really haven't uh, got any precedent for. A whiff of Brexit and the chaos then uh, was around. At the heart of all of this, as far as the Labour leadership was concerned, was that uh, today there were going to be votes on Gaza, but Labour MPs wouldn't necessarily, because of all sorts of procedural reasons, get a chance to vote on a preferred Labour leadership version of a Gaza ceasefire uh, motion. They weren't going to get that. I won't go into all the details of the procedure. We really are drowning in the stuff here uh, today. But the Speaker then bent, extended the rules, extended a favour to the Leader uh, of the Opposition to make sure uh, that Labour did get that vote. Now, Labour leadership people are saying this is because the spe- it was impressed upon the Speaker that if Labour MPs in certain constituencies couldn't vote for a ceasefire in some form they felt comfortable with, they could be under threat in their constituencies uh, from extremely uh, angry people who were threatening violence in some places. Now, the other thing that was going on here, though, was that Keir Starmer was facing a very big threat of a rebellion. He had a rebellion of 56 people the last time Parliament debated uh, Gaza uh, with a vote like this back in November. He was facing a rebellion of about 100, most people uh, uh, estimate, if it had gone ahead on the terms it was going to tonight. And resignations from the Shadow Cabinet, uh, from the Labour front bench. So the Speaker really has done Keir Starmer quite a favour by inserting Labour's motion into the uh, procedures today. But in response, other parties have flounced out furiously. The Tories are saying the Speaker's bending the rules in Labour's favour. So are the SNP. The Speaker is under threat. We've not really had a very edifying debate about Gaza at all. And... Here's a flavour of how this day went. There were more Israeli attacks on Gaza overnight, but 138 days since the Hamas attack on Israel, the Commons debate on Gaza began with an outcry over procedure. As demonstrators gathered outside, the Speaker announced he was dumping the usual rules and allowing Keir Starmer a chance to keep more of his party together by allowing a vote on Labour's policy. All but the Labour loyalists erupted with anger. I have therefore decided to select the amendments both in the name of the Prime Minister and in the name of the Leader of the Opposition. There were cries of shame from Tories and the SNP who thought the Speaker had bent the rules to help Keir Starmer dampen down a giant revolt. What is the point of an opposition day if it's going to be done like this? Which restricts, which restricts order, order. You'll be going and not be voting. As MPs shouted abuse, the Speaker struggled to maintain order. His office released a letter of dissent from the Clerk of the House. I feel compelled to point out that long-established conventions are not being followed in this case. 
As Keir Starmer left the chamber, he said an audible thank you to the Speaker. Labour were in a huge dilemma. The, you know, the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, was on, a, on a, an enormous hook, and the Speaker has got him off it. Now, I doubt that that will matter much to the general public, but it does matter in here, and there's some bad feeling. In a private meeting, Keir Starmer told the Speaker Labour MPs must have the chance to vote for a ceasefire motion or they could face threats in their constituencies. MPs ended up with the choice of the SNP's motion, calling for an immediate ceasefire, Labour's amendment, calling for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire, and until it was withdrawn just before the vote, the government's amendment, calling for an immediate humanitarian pause. Some Labour MPs, maybe 50, were still this afternoon ready to rebel and back the SNP's choice of language. SNP motion will come. I think there will be a sizable number of Labour MPs, including me, who will be voting for that, because out there in our constituencies, people want to know what our position is. And there's an overwhelming feeling in most of our constituencies that immediate ceasefire is needed. Are you categorically denying that you weren't licking your lips at the idea of dividing Labour tonight, playing politics with this? My focus throughout has been on making sure that we are the voice of the voiceless. And Never crossed a, your mind that they would be uncomfortable there's, there's, split. there's always a fallout from what people do and don't do in politics. That's the nature of politics. In scenes reminiscent of Parliament's Brexit chaos, the government withdrew its motion... The SNP attacked the Speaker, who now seems seriously under threat. I fear that this most grave uh, matter that we are discussing today and this afternoon has become a political row within the Labour Party and that regrettably, and that regrettably order. I want to hear the point of order. Thank you. And that, thank you, Madam Deputy Speaker. And that, regrettably, Mr Speaker has inserted himself into that row with today's decision. So can you please advise me, where on earth is the Speaker of the House of Commons? How, how do we bring him to that seat to explain... To, how do we bring him to this House now to explain to the Scottish National Party why our views and our votes in this House are irrelevant to him. Some Cabinet members then called their own MPs to leave the chamber, and the SNP's MPs walked out too. The debate about Gaza was completely overshadowed by a procedural mess. Labour avoided a revolt today and resignations. But the price was considered debate, ripped-up conventions, and maybe the political life of the Speaker of the House of Commons. Well, the next day, SNP leader Stephen Flynn told the Speaker he and his party no longer had confidence in him doing the job. Mr Flynn told Sir Lindsay privately he would come into the Chamber of the Commons to seek advice on the way forward. And this is what he said. Leader of the SNP. Mr Speaker, last evening we saw the, the best of this House and its ability to debate and we also saw the worst of this House as it descended into farce. And I think I speak for everyone in the Chamber just now and indeed yesterday when I expressed my deep sorrow that that was able to happen given the content of what it was we were debating. Nevertheless, Mr Speaker, it descended into farce because of a decision that you made and you alone made to ignore the advice that was given to you 
by the clerks. In doing so, on the opposition day of the Scottish National Party, my colleagues and I were denied the ability to vote on a matter which is of grave concern to us and which over recent months we have sought to raise in this chamber at every available opportunity. It ultimately turned into a Labour opposition day. That, quite frankly, is not acceptable. And as I have expressed to you privately prior to proceedings here today, we do, there, we do not, on these benches, therefore believe that you can continue in your role as Speaker. We do not have confidence in your ability to do so. So I would therefore welcome clarity, either from yourself or indeed from the Leader of the House, as to how we can best facilitate a vote in this chamber at the earliest possible occasion to that effect. Leader. Uh, can I thank the Honourable Gentleman for his question? I hope that he can see in my actions yesterday that I am a servant of this House and that I, even though it may not be in the government's interests uh, to do so, uh, um, narrow interests to do so, uh, I will protect the rights of all minority parties to be able to uh, air their views in this place and to those parties that are afforded opposition day debates that they are able to have those debates in the fullest sense uh, and have votes on the motions that they put. We create the rules of this House and the Speaker uh, serves at our behest. I think given the range of views that have been expressed on the floor of the House today, uh, many interventions being supportive of the Speaker and pointing out the pressures that were put on him yesterday, that we take time to reflect. Mr Speaker has said his door is open to all parties and individual members, as is mine. But as I said, the Government will listen to this House I am a servant of this House, and I will do its bidding. I will also come in at this point. I will reiterate, I made a judgment call that didn't end up in the position where I expected it to. I regret it. I apologise to the SNP. Just, just bear with me for I apologise, and I apologise to the House. I made a mistake. We do make mistakes. Iron up to mine. I would say that we can have an SO24 to get an immediate debate because the debate is so important to this House. I will defend every member in this House. Every member matters to me in this House. And it has been said both sides, I never ever want to go through a situation where I pick up a phone to find a friend of whatever side has been murdered by terrorists. I also don't want another attack on this house. I was in the chair on that day. I have seen, I have witnessed. I won't show the details, but the details of the things that have been brought to me are absolutely frightening on all members of this house. On all sides, I have a duty of care 
And I say that. And if my mistake is looking after members, I am guilty. I am guilty because... I have a duty of care that I will carry out to protect people. It is the protection that led me to make a wrong decision. But what I do not apologise is the risk that's being put on all members at the moment. I had serious meetings yesterday with the police on the issues and threats to politicians, threats heading to an election. And I do not want anything to happen again. So, yes, I will apologise. I always will when I make a mistake. I did. I offer an SO24. That is within my gift and power. But I will also say I will do whatever it is to protect anybody in this chamber or anybody who works in this House. That is my duty of care. In the end, the House voted on the Labour amendment and called for a ceasefire in the Israel-Gaza conflict. Neither Hamas nor Israel will pay it the slightest bit of attention. Scotland has produced some of the finest politicians. John Smith, Robin Cook, Donald Dewar, Charles Kennedy, Alex Salmond. And this week, the former First Minister of Scotland, Alex Salmond, reminded many of his statesmanship as he appeared here before the Scottish Affairs Committee. This committee is looking at the impact of 25 years of devolution of the Scottish Parliament. In the chair, Pete Wishart, MP, who was there when Alex Hammond last gave evidence to the committee in 2010. And you, Mr Chairman, are the only surviving member, so you must be in for some sort of award for longevity and long service on this committee. I've looked at the, I mean, I welcome obviously your study and report, and I'm delighted to give evidence. Uh, I think I'll argue, and obviously respond to your questions, but I'll argue that in my experience there have been kind of three phases uh, of uh, intra-governmental cooperation. And the first phase is what I found uh, when I uh, was elected in 2007 to be First Minister, and that was that the structures of devolution had totally broken down. Uh, they were, I mean, there hadn't been a plenary joint ministerial council for five years, <laughs> between 2002 and 2007. Uh, they, I should say that the European one was still working. In fact, Jack Straw was foreign secretary, and he told me once that uh, he assumed, because that was working, he assumed all the other ones were working as well. <laughs> he, just, he just made that assumption, but actually it was only... The European ones that was working because they were set by European Council meetings and discussions between ministers. And so I, I mean, I knew this beforehand um, because it was in preparation for government, you know, anticipation of hoping for victory. Uh, and I'd actually put it in the manifesto. The 2007 SNP manifesto had a commitment to re-establish, if possible, because obviously it takes agreement, the formal mechanisms of the joint ministerial committees. And that's what I sought to do. Now, I didn't manage that with the, I think it was six, seven weeks where I coexisted with Prime Minister Blair, mainly because he didn't speak to me at all. I didn't have a single conversation with him over that period of time. And I actually believe, and I'll substantiate this in answer to questions, that the, the key reason for the breakdown of the inter 
intra-governmental committees was the attitude of the then Prime Minister. I think he was totally disinterested in the mechanics of devolution. He had other things that perhaps he felt were more important. Uh, so I would place the responsibility squarely on him. And the evidence for that is when Gordon Brown came in, uh, it was totally different. I mean, uh, for example, I spoke to, uh, to Gordon on his first day in office as he spoke to me on my first day in office. Uh, uh, and the GMC plenary was re-established, uh, and other meetings they, they were established. We tried to get a, a better format for them, uh, and it was pretty successful. There was a number of key successes and key workings together, a number of resolutions of old disputes, and importantly, a disputes resolution, resolution procedure was uh, I can't remember if it was established before the election of 2010 or immediately afterwards, but certainly it was in the process of being established. Uh, there was a wee bit of tension as the election approached. You know, you tend to, between governments, as an election approaches, <laughs> there tends to be a bit of sensitivity, which you know, perhaps immediately after the election there isn't. But basically, to, in credit to Prime Minister Brown, the, the system was re-established. Obviously, traditionally, historically, Gordon Brown had much more interest in devolution than, than Tony Blair had. And that situation improved again under Prime Minister Cameron. Uh, and uh, I, mean, I saw that uh, David is meeting the Foreign, uh, Foreign Minister of China this week. Uh, uh, so perhaps we'll call that the golden age of the Joint Ministerial Committees. And there were reasons for that, I think political reasons why that was the most successful period in the period from 2010 to 2014. Uh, of, the, uh, of that system of mm -hmm. intra-government uh, cooperation. I mean, I should say, my, you know, obviously, I, I think you should cooperate where you can. That's you know, what we're here to do, uh, to work for the best interests in terms of your responsibilities of the country or your constituency. Uh, you know, politically, I was very keen on seeing intra-government cooperation work because I wanted that to transition into inter-government cooperation. Uh, I saw it as part of a process leading to independence. So I wanted to see good cooperative structures which could then evolve into, into you know, a British council of states or whatever. Uh, and so I had a political uh, end in mind as well as wanting to see decent relationships where you could. Now, the last of the three periods, which, you know, I, I mean, obviously I, I wasn't involved as a practising politician, uh, but as a, you know, an intelligent layperson observing it, uh, there seems to have been one of fairly total breakdown in relationships. There was evidence given to the COVID inquiry, although not as much as there should have been, um, that senior advisers in the Sturgeon government saw it as an opportunity for a rally on the constitution. If you had been First Minister during the COVID pandemic, would you have carried out government in the way that the Sturgeon government did? I certainly wouldn't add that person as anywhere near being a senior advisor. Uh, uh, I mean, it struck me, that the person you're talking about is Liz Lloyd. It struck me as probably the most revealing thing I saw in that was that somehow, uh, amid all the missing WhatsApp messages, one message which managed to be somehow miraculously retained was the one that referred to Boris Johnson as a expletive deletive clown. Now, listen, your constituents, my old constituents, many people might agree with that. But I cannot believe the COVID relatives watching that inquiry wanted to hear that. Or for that matter, the Scottish Secretary, 
uh, addressing things in the way he did in giving his evidence. I mean, the last thing Coburn-Elliott want to hear is what politicians think about each other. What they want to hear about is what they actually did in terms of uh, addressing the thing. So as far as that particular case is concerned, that particular person wouldn't have been a thousand miles from being a senior advisor. And, and on that exact point about um, <coughs> messages being retained, I appreciate you were in government in a period maybe where WhatsApp wasn't quite such a, a key no. part of our day-to-day life, but, but electronic <coughs> messaging was in, in different forms. Did you retain any of your messages from that period, and, and are you surprised about how few have been retained <laughs> by the current government? Well, I, I was interested to hear that uh, some people claim those practices back to 2007 to delete messages. That's the first I'd heard of it. And I actually checked with Kerry McCaskill and uh, Alec Neil, uh, the two <coughs> ministers at the time, you know, whether they'd ever heard of that policy. <laughs> they hadn't heard of it either. Politics change but never stop. It affects everything we do. I'm Charles Fletcher with The Week in Hollywood. Join me here for coverage of the Scottish, UK and European parliaments. It's a crucial election year where you once again have a choice. Who's in, who's out? The ups, the downs. Join me, Charles Fletcher, bringing Holyrood home. You're listening to The Week in Holyrood from Westminster and still ahead, this week's questions to the First Minister, plus a reporter's notebook. Holyrood's Citizen Participation and Public Petitions Committee is calling on former First Ministers Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon to give evidence over the duelling of the A9. It's part of the committee's inquiry into a petition that asks the Scottish Government to fulfil its 2011 promise to duel the A9 between Perth and Inverness, to improve road safety and consider the creation of a national memorial to those who've lost their lives on it. The invitation will go out to both in due course. So then, to this week's questions to the current First Minister, Hamza Yousaf. Scottish Conservative and Unionist leader Douglas Ross asks about a damning Audit Scotland report. It says the NHS is unable to meet growing demands. Mr Ross is accusing the First Minister of being asleep at the wheel over the NHS. Uh, This morning, Audit Scotland released a damning report on the state of Scotland's NHS. Amongst many shocking figures, people waiting over a year for treatment has jumped from 3,500 to 40,000. That's an 11-fold increase since 2019, despite patient numbers falling. When he was Health Secretary, Hamza Youssef brought in his NHS recovery plan that was supposed to bring waiting times down. So why, First Minister, are things getting worse, not better? First Minister. Presenting officer, uh, first and foremost, let me say that we take very seriously uh, the comments in the report by the Auditor General that were published uh, this morning. There's simply no doubt or indeed attempts by us to downplay the seriousness of the challenges the health service is facing as it recovers uh, from what is undoubtedly the biggest shock of its 75-year existence, the global pandemic. And of course, there are challenges for every single health service right across the UK. To answer uh, Douglas Ross's question directly, we are still facing the accumulative impacts 
of the pandemic. Uh, people are still, for example, winter suffering from, the, from COVID. That has an impact not just, uh, of course, on IPC within hospitals, uh, but also, of course, on staff who are able to perform elective care uh, and treatments and surgeries. These are common challenges. I accept, of course, they are, are my responsibility here in NHS uh, Scotland as well as the health secretaries. These are common challenges right across the country. In fact, if I look at some of the latest data in September last year, it did show that Scotland, there was 123 patients waiting per 1,000 of the population for the treatment time guarantee and new outpatient appointments. That is fewer than in England, where it is 137 per 1,000 on the referral to treatment waiting list. And in Wales, that figure is 245 per 1,000. So my point in making that is that, of course, there are challenges uh, that Scotland's NHS is facing. Of that, there is no doubt. Uh, these are common challenges right across the UK. And what we'll do is make sure we fund the NHS. And that's why I'm pleased that in the budget announced by the Deputy First Minister last year, that we invested a record £19.5 in our health service. Dr Shaws. This is an Audit Scotland report into NHS Scotland. Please, First Minister, focus on our NHS here in Scotland. Because that shocking 11-fold increase in people waiting over a year is, of course, against a target which should be zero. There was a target for March 2023 for people waiting over a year to be eradicated. Instead, it is now over 40,000. And Audit Scotland say that the latest SNP targets to reduce waiting times are unlikely to be met. Those are Hamza Yusuf's targets. It was his recovery plan. When he was Health Secretary, he said, this plan will drive the recovery of our NHS, not just to pre-pandemic level, but beyond, yet another example of Hamza Yusuf winging it. That arrogant claim now rings hollow and patients in Scotland are suffering. Hamza Yusuf sent waiting times in the wrong direction. Will he now finally admit his plan has failed? First Minister. Officer, uh, here is what we have managed to achieve and I accept, of course, there's still the way to go and I accept, of course, the recommendations of the Audit Scotland report, but we have seen, because of the investment that we've made in national treatment centres, an additional 20,000 procedures through the investment in our national treatment centres. It's why we've seen also an increase in the last 12 months, an 11% increase in performed operation over the last year. It's why outpatients waiting longer than two years has fallen by almost 70%. Inpatient day case uh, patients waiting the longest fallen by over 25%. And that is why we're investing over £19.5 a record amount, in our national health service. What makes that recovery, of course, more difficult is a 10% cut to our capital budget, yeah. which means we have less to spend on capital health infrastructure. What makes that job more difficult, presiding officer, is only being provided £10.8 million of health consequentials in the UK government's autumn statement, enough for five hours of NHS activity. So while the Conservatives rightly will ask questions about what further we can do, let me say that this SNP government will invest in our NHS, unlike Douglas Ross's party, who are cutting the funding to the bones. Douglas Ross. It's not just the Conservatives that are asking these questions, it's Audit Scotland, and crucially, it's our constituents who are suffering. But as usual, Hamza Yusuf promised the world and delivered very little. 
just like the ferries he claimed he would build, just like the hate crime act that he said would be a success, just like the trains that he promised to get to run on time. Audit Scotland say they can't even fully measure how badly his recovery plan has failed because the SNP has not been transparent with the public. This is what they say. Updates against a range of the ambitions are absent. Hamza Yusuf is covering up just how bad it's been. But the reason for this failure is clear from the report. Audit Scotland states there is no overall vision for Scotland's NHS. No overall vision. How can Hamza Yusuf and this SNP government have no vision for Scotland's NHS? First Minister. Planning officer, again, we will respond to the Audit Scotland report in due course. But let me say to Douglas Ross, let me say to Douglas Ross that when it comes to the SNP stewardship of our NHS, that stewardship, of course, has seen record investment in our NHS of over 19.5 billion. It has seen resource funding more than double, increased by over 100 per cent since we've been in power. It's shown record staffing in our NHS of over 31,300 whole-time equivalents. There's more nurses in Scotland per head than in England. We have the best NHS staff anywhere in the UK. We have the best performing A&E departments, not for one year, not for five years, but for eight consecutive years, presiding officer. And because we value our NHS staff, we are the only nation in the UK not to have NHS staff go on strike, presiding officer. When it comes to the challenges that our NHS is facing, undoubtedly facing, I'm not downplaying them, this government is making sure that we invest in that recovery. But the difference between the Tories and the SNP, presiding officer, is that we will invest in our NHS while the Conservatives are cutting it right down to the bone. Yeah. Douglas Ross. There is no vision for Scotland's NHS. Not my words, but the words of the Auditor-General for Scotland. And they make it very clear that the lack of vision has not just happened because of the pandemic and the issues that our NHS faced. There has not been a, a vision for Scotland's NHS since 2013. They say, and I quote, there has been no unified vision for the future direction of the entire healthcare system published since 2013. 2013. Hamza Youssef has no vision for Scotland's NHS. He's been asleep at the wheel like every other SNP First Minister. There's been a lost decade of leadership in Scotland's NHS. Ten years of stalling and delay has had dire consequences for patients. How long are people in Scotland going to have to wait for the SNP to get their act together? First Minister. Officer are investing in that recovery now. That's why, for example, those outpatients waiting the longest has reduced by almost 70%. That's why inpatients waiting the longest have reduced by over 25%. It's Mr. why operations Ross. performed in the last 12 months have increased by 11%. It's why, through our investment, we've created additional capacity for 20,000 procedures. It's why we're investing a record £19.5 in our NHS, despite the fact that the UK government, in their autumn statement, provided Let's a less than the £11 million pounds for NHS health consequentials. That's enough 
to fund five hours of NHS activity, presiding officer. So I will take not a single lecture from Douglas Ross about investing in our NHS when his party is responsible for a 10% capital cut in our budget, which is deeply impacting our health infrastructure. Douglas Ross, presiding officer, Douglas Ross, presiding officer, I'm afraid is presiding over a party that has taken a hatchet to our public services. So while they cut it to the bone, we'll continue to invest in the most precious institution in this country, our National Health Service. Labour leader Anas Sarwar turns to the SNP's position on the windfall tax Labour is proposing to increase. The First Minister says under Labour's plans, workers in the North East will be left on the scrap heap. Here's the Labour leader. We are in the middle of a cost of living crisis where too many people are struggling to make ends meet. At the same time, oil and gas giants are making record profits. British Gas, a tenfold increase in profits in one year to over £700 million. BP, £11 billion profit. Total, £16 billion profit. Shell, £22 billion profit. Why does the First Minister think that these companies can't afford to pay more tax? First Minister. Planning officer, I have to say, um, a week after the P&J put Anna Sawar's face on the front page with his Labour colleagues and called him a traitor of the North East, it is incredibly brave of Anna Sawar to come up here and say that he is standing up for Let's the North hear the East. First Minister. I, of course, travelled to the North East this week and heard the palpable anger from oil and gas and renewable energy yeah. sectors and industries, who of course out. spoke about Anasawar's plans, the Labour Party's plans, which would, in their words, not my words, in the industry's words, risk up to 100,000 jobs in the North East. How does Anasawar think, in the midst of a cost of living crisis, throwing 100,000 workers in the scrap heap, is going to help households up and down the country. So we absolutely believe in a windfall tax on energy companies. What we don't believe in is Anna Members, let and us hear the First Minister. plans to raid the North East so they can build new nuclear power plants in England. So we won't allow it. We won't stand for it. We'll stand up for the North East. Anna Sauer can't even stand up to Keir Starmer, presiding officer. Thank you, thank you. Let's hear Mr Sarwar. Every time Labour's proposed a change to help working people, warnings have been made and they've not come true. In 1997, when Labour proposed a minimum wage and a windfall tax, they were warned it would cost two million jobs. It didn't happen. It improved the lives of working people across the country. Now, Hamza Yusuf used to support Labour's windfall tax, but now he's siding with energy giants, making record profits, while today he is putting up tax for working people across this country who are struggling. Maybe Let's members hear Mr Sarwar. While Shell have brought in £22 billion in profit, energy bills have increased by 60% and people are struggling to heat their homes. While BP make £11 billion in profit, Food prices are up 25% and people are struggling to put food on the table. While British Gas sees a tenfold increase in profits, 
mortgages have increased by £2,000 a year and families risk losing their home. Why does the SNP believe that if you earn £28,500, you have the broadest shoulders and should pay more tax, but if you're an energy giant making billions in profit, you should pay less tax? First Minister. Presiding uh, officer, imagine taking a lecture about standing up for those in the lowest incomes from the man who's flip-flop his yeah. position and now believes in lifting the cap on bankers' yeah. bonuses, presiding yeah, officer. Oh, wow! Who would have thought? Who would have thought the party of the few, not the party yeah, of yeah, the many, presiding yeah, officer? Yeah, yeah. And it is astonishing that Anasawa has stood up in this chamber and called the energy industry liars. Yep. That is what he has done. Yep. Let me just say what Offshore Energy UK have said. They claim that Labour's proposals would lose at least up to 42,000 jobs, and I quote, wipe out North Sea investment. Investment bank Stifle have said that under a worst-case scenario, Labour's proposals would wipe up to 100,000 jobs out put them on the scrap heap. So what you get with Labour's energy proposal, presiding officer, is the worst of both worlds. Yeah. You end up getting all of the investment in oil and gas, which of course has been good for Scotland over the decades. That gets completely wiped out. And then what does Keir Starmer do? He dumps his £28 yeah. billion pound a year yeah. green prosperity fund. Yeah. Scotland, Scotland's energy should be in Scotland's hands because successive Westminster governments have raided the North East, yeah. have raided Aberdeen, yeah. have raided our oil and gas revenues, yeah. and not a single penny has been invested back into the people of Aberdeen or the North East. And for that, Anna Sarwar should stand up and apologise. Yeah. Anna Sarwar. Presiding officer, presiding officer, I can't wait to present the choice at the next general election between the SNP and the Let Labour Party. Let us hear... I can't sorry, wait. Mr Sarwar, sorry. Let's ensure that we can hear one another. Mr Sarwar. I was just saying, presiding officer, I can't wait to present the choice to the Scottish people come to the next general election because firmly the SNP on the side of energy giants making billions and Labour trying to bring down people's bills and on the side of working people. But let's be clear, but let's be clear what Labour's windfall tax on record profits of energy giants will be spent on. It will mean more jobs, lower bills, greater energy security and delivering a just transition for Scotland. It will mean investment in GB Let Energy, us hear, Mr. a publicly-owned gener energy generation company headquartered here in Scotland. It will mean investment in our ports, in onshore wind, offshore wind, green hydrogen, carbon capture and storage, and strengthening our supply chains. It will mean creating 50,000 new jobs in Scotland. So isn't it the case that the Scottish people have a choice? The SNP increasing tax on working people while siding with the oil and gas giants or Labour creating jobs, bringing down bills and firmly on the side of working people. First Minister. Presiding <laughs> Officer, first can I, can I remind Anna Sawa when he talks about people in the midst of a cost of living crisis, he now has flip-flopped his way to being in a position where he believes on retaining the cap on the child benefits, but wants to lift the cap on bankers' bonuses, presiding officer. It is utterly outrageous. And let me say to Anna Sawara, 
when I was in Aberdeen earlier this week, I can't wait to go head-to-head with Anna Sawar uh, in Aberdeen yeah, 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 on the yeah. general election. Yeah. And in fact, you can debate yeah. the oil and gas industry and renew members in Aberdeen any and every single day of the week. And Anna Sawar claims that the Labour and incoming Labour government will make all sorts of First Minister, if you just give oh, me a moment. Oh, they don't like it, presiding officer. They First don't like Minister, it one single bit. First Minister, just give me a moment. Let's ensure we carry on our proceedings with courtesy and respect. Let's ensure we can hear one another. And Anna Sawar claims that there will be a whole range and raft of investment from an incoming Labour government. Of course, what is obvious, presiding officer, is the branch manager didn't get the memo yeah. that the £28 billion pounds yeah. has been dumped. Yeah. So not a single penny of that investment yeah. is going to be coming either. to Scotland. Yeah. No. So, presiding yeah. officer, successive no, UK governments have taken £400 billion pounds in today's prices and oil and gas revenue raided the North Sea as a cash cow without investing a fraction of it back in the North East and back in Aberdeen. With Anna Sawar's plans, you end up with 100,000 workers on the scrap heap and no investment in our net zero ambitions. Isn't it about time that Scotland's energy was in Scotland's hands, presiding officer? We continue this session of questions to the First Minister. Here is presiding officer Alison Johnston. Fergus Ewing. Thank you, presiding officer. To ask the First Minister regarding the delivery of the Scottish Government's recently published depopulation action plan, what will be different about this approach, which is described as local by default, national by agreement, particularly towards the approval of new developments supported by local communities? First Minister. The Addressing Depopulation Action Plan does set out the Scottish Government's strategic approach aimed at supporting local communities that are facing population decline. I know it's an issue that the member has a significant interest in. And, of course, that is set against the very devastating impact that a hard Brexit is having on our rural and island communities. In terms of uh, what new the plan will do, it will deliver a whole new programme of work which will support and empower affected areas through funding, new research, enhanced partnership working with those local communities. And we do acknowledge, as Fergus Ewing has said, the importance of local leadership and that communities are best placed to respond to their own challenges. Fergus Ewing. Also, young people leaving Scotland for other countries forever, for their lifetime, has been Scotland's tragedy and our shame. Therefore, will he, where there is a chronic depopulation problem, now agree that economic developments, which would bring major jobs and major community benefits, will henceforth be treated as developments of national economic significance. First Minister. I'm more than happy to look at that proposal. Of course, when planning applications are called into the Scottish Government, the whole range of factors are considered. Of course, the natural environmental impact, but also the economic impact is, of course, important. I won't comment on any, of course, uh, specific uh, live uh, application, but Fergus Ewing is absolutely right. If we want to retain our young people, then we have to ensure that we create the economic opportunities. We have to ensure that we invest in the housing, which we're doing, uh, of course, through our affordable housing supply programme in our rural uh, communities. And we have to ensure that we invest in the connectivity, which, of course, we are also doing as well. But Fergus Ewing makes some very important points but what is devastating our rural communities, undoubtedly, uh, is the hard uh, damage that has been called by, by a hard uh, Brexit foisted upon uh, uh, Scotland against its very will. Yeah. Pam Gossel. 
Thank you, Presiding Officer. Housing was mentioned 114 times in the Depopulation Action Plan, yet Homes for Scotland were not consulted on the plan, nor were they even aware of it, despite being advisers for housing to 2040. Does the First Minister accept this failure to, to properly consult the sector on this plan as a huge mis misstep? And what action will he take to rectify this? Yeah. First Minister. Presenting officer, uh, we engage regularly with stakeholders. If there has been an omission, of course, I'm more than happy to look at that, and I'll ask the appropriate minister uh, to do so. But I go back to the point I made to my response to Fergus Ewing. Uh, housing in rural communities is absolutely essential when it comes to retaining and indeed attracting people to rural and island uh, communities. And of course, we published our Rural and, and Island Housing Action Plan, published in October of last year, and it sets out a whole wide range of action that we're taking to support rural and island population. That includes, of course, continued investment in affordable housing, and of course, 10% uh, of those, uh, those affordable houses being in rural and island communities. A continued support from com to communities through our rural and island housing fund to bring forward housing where they wish to do so, up to £25 million, of course, from the affordable housing budget over the next five years to support housing for key workers and a whole range of other action, which I'm happy for the Housing Minister to write to Pam Goso to give her confidence that we take seriously the issue of housing in our rural and island communities. Question number five, Douglas Lumsden. Thank you, President Officer. To ask the First Minister whether the Scottish Government still has a policy of a presumption against any new oil and gas licences. First Minister. President Officer, oil and gas continues to play an important part in Scotland's energy transition. Our focus is on meeting energy security needs reducing emissions in line with climate goals and ensuring that just transition for workforces as North Sea oil and gas resources inevitably decline. As part of this approach, our draft energy strategy and just transition plan consulted on a presumption against licensing of new exploration of oil and gas. We've never proposed a position of no new licensing at all. So unlike the Conservatives, we're not ignoring the scale of the climate crisis that is befalling our planet. We will work with the energy Mr. industry Sarwar. to accelerate that transition to net zero where we can. Douglas yeah. Lumsden. Presiding officer, the First Minister makes one trip up to Aberdeen and then masquerades as the saviour of the oil and gas industry. He must, he must think the people of the North East are buttoned up the back. Yeah. He's against Campbell, he's against Rosebank, and his government still has a presumption against any new oil and gas licences. So will the First Minister tell the Chamber today why he is in favour of importing more oil and gas, stopping new investment, which, as the First Minister knows, means throwing away thousands of livelihoods on the scrap heap? First Minister. Of course, if uh, Douglas Ross knew what he was talking about, he would know that the vast majority of oil that is extracted from the North Sea gets exported. Uh, overseas, presiding uh, officer. But what's clear to me, what's clear to the people of Scotland, what's clear to the people of the North East is that Westminster is not working for yeah. Scotland. You're listening to The Week in Holyrood from Westminster with Charles Fletcher. Time to open our occasional series of events recorded in the reporter's notebook. This week, the chaos in the House of Commons. Some days it's just enough to be alive at a time of great Westminster theatre, being there when Alex Salmond disrupted Nigel Lawson's budget in 1989. The young buck from Banff and Buchan was suspended for a week as the Tories were administered smelling salts. How dare someone have the temerity to interfere with the order, their order of the day? 
This week, the order of the day, SNP Opposition Day, was interfered with by no less a figure than the Speaker of the House, Sir Lindsay Hoyle. As both sides of the chamber jeered and remonstrated, some cried, shame on you. Others jested, bring back Berko, in reference to Lindsay Hoyle's predecessor, John Berko. You could sense all was not well when even the Tories were calling that. The Speaker was in trouble. He was only trying to do the right thing by everyone, he later claimed. Hear me out, he pleaded. He stopped short of saying a big boy done it and ran away. He's actually too decent to say something like that. But in the chamber's cheap seats, and some of the posher ones too, all uttered the same name. In the corridors, in the tea rooms, the same big boy again and again. The name oft repeated. Sir Keir Starmer. This was, after all, in the diary as the SNP's opposition day. This is when an opposition party has the opportunity to drive the business of the House for a day. And although this day belonged to the SNP, somehow the Speaker contrived to shift it into an opposition day for Labour. And it was ultimately on the Labour amendment there was a vote. The SNP motion, the proposition at the heart of the day, wasn't voted on. This day was unprecedented, for the Speaker broke with convention and, despite being given clear advice not to do what he planned to do, he went ahead and he did it anyway. A reputation for being straight and fair and effective has been undermined. The Speaker played with ceasefire and he got burned. And that's The Week in Holyrood from Westminster with Caledonia Media. I'm Charles Fletcher. Join me again next time at the same time or on SoundCloud or Replay. I keep up. Online at k107.co.uk and on air at 107.4.